Well, we've come to this same chapter again this week that we were in last week because really there was just no way to possibly capture the fullness of what was taking place in Genesis chapter 45 as Joseph met his brothers for the first time in many, many years. And I'll be honest, today we're not going to be able to do that either, but we're going to take one more shot at it and give us another perspective on what it was like, what was really taking place when Joseph met his brothers after all those years and all the things that they had done to him to bring him to this place. Before I say those things, though, before we jump into the message itself, I want to give you just a few brief thoughts that might be helpful, super brief. First of all, I shot through the notes way too fast last week, so you couldn't, pro most, and, uh, unless you were really fast at it, you didn't get the, what the notes actually were. So I have put the answer key on the back of this week's notes. And I'm going to try to be better with the front side of this week's notes and not give it quite so fast this week, but um, we'll just see how the time goes. So, um, you know, one of the things that's really, uh, can I just tell you heart to heart, one of the things that's so fun to me, I know fun is a strange word perhaps to use for preaching, but it really is a ton of fun to have a three-way interaction going. It's an interaction between me and God and you and God, and it's an interaction between you and me, and I love the process. So what exactly will happen today, I'm not quite sure yet, because I have some notes, but we'll just see how it actually all plays out. The, uh, the other thing I wanted to mention, a couple of other things I wanted to mention, we're going to be talking about Joseph forgiving his brothers because that's one thing I deliberately omitted last week as we talked about what was taking place in the whole scene with Joseph and his brothers. But I want you to understand that what we're going to discuss this morning really is only a vignette of what's taking place in the greater perspective of forgiveness in the Bible. So please understand this is not a systematic theology of forgiveness. I would like to do that. That would be fun, but we don't have time today to do a complete systematic theology. We're going to be looking at it forgiveness from Joseph's perspective, and we're going to be taking some other looks through the Bible as well to get a glance at it, but it's not a complete picture. So uh, this, is, this is going to be a beginning point. Perhaps it's a beginning point for you to step out and do some of your own study in the Bible and to find out other things that God has to say about forgiveness. Let me add one more uh, kind of a heart note and say that this message is uniquely um, convicting, quite honestly, to me personally. So when we start talking about forgiveness, we look at people like Joseph and we say, I mean, there were these massive faults in his life, these ma not his fault, but, but ruptures in relationships and, and disparities in things that have been done to him and what should have been done to him. And these huge issues that could have caused enormous bitterness and anger and frustration and all kinds of relational problems. And we say, well, I actually don't, you know, maybe I don't actually have those things in my life. Great, wonderful, you may yet have them, but all of us get a chance to forgive. And a lot of times, quite honestly, it comes in some of the smallest ways. Can I just say that it often will come between a husband and a wife? I don't know that by experience, but no, actually I do. Because, there's, because every time you're in close proximity to a person, there are little things that rub you. For brothers and sisters, yes, this message is for you. For fellow members in the body, yes, this is for us. Because the message of forgiveness permeates everything that we do. Whenever we work together with other people, we have an opportunity to practice what we're going to be hearing this morning, how Joseph forgave. But before we do that, I want to tell you a little story. 
to lead into where we're going this morning. I grew up in Northern California. This is the lane that I grew up on. And um, it's a little dirt road, and I actually mean it's a dirt road. Um, it was not a graveled road. There may have been gravel at one time on this road, but the dirt in that part of the country is decomposed granite. And so decomposed granite makes a really great road in the summertime. And uh, so it's really good at that point in time. It was, it was a fairly good road. We lived a half a mile down this road. And, um, and, and as you come down the road, it dropped steeply down from Taylor Road onto, onto this gravel or this dirt road. And uh, because it was in the Sierra Nevada foothills, com complicating the way that the lane worked, it was up and down sharply with all the little hills, right? So again, a very good road in the summertime, sort of, except for the fact we never knocked all the potholes out. So you got to be kind of an artist to drive this road. You'd, you'd um, kind of get muscle memory. I learned to drive on this road. In fact, I learned to drive long before um, I was old enough to drive on the main road. I drove on this road, and um, you, could, you could learn. You know, it's like, oh, there's this big pothole here. You dive to the right. Oh, quick, over to the left. And, you know, the road wasn't a dotted line, right? It's a dirt road. So you dove all over the road, back and forth, and, and, um, and that's what we would do. But in the wintertime, it got kind of to be a problem because those potholes were the result of what would happen during winter rains. And it wasn't just potholes, it was potholes and terrific ruts because, the, uh, because with the steep descents of the road, the water would course down it and cut big grooves in the road. Sometimes those grooves would run along the edges. Other times they'd dive right across the middle of the road. Why water does what it does and exactly how the grade of roads work, I'm sure that's for civil engineers, but uh, this road hadn't been designed by one. And so, the, uh, so we, would, uh, we would learn how to drive this road, and it was actually slick enough. Going up the final part to Taylor Road, kind of a busy country road, Busy for the country, though. Um, it would actually be slick enough in the winter time that, uh, with washboard and whatever else, it, the little the tires of our rear-wheel drive 1966 Ford Falcon would spin. So it was a pretty interesting road to grow up on. But this part of the road was actually after the road had come down and dropped and come down to our particular driveway. At this point, it turned a hard 90 to go out the other side to Gallardi Road. And that's one of the things that made this road uniquely complicated. It was a through road. So people could connect all the way from Taylor on one side to Gallardi on the other, turn a hard 90 at our driveway, and head down Logan Lane through this low spot up a steep bank on the other side, and then down, 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 down to Gallardi on the other end. And sometimes, many times, people would do that. People who didn't live on this lane would drive down the lane for the purpose of getting from one side to the other. Now, I'm not sure why they thought that was a good idea, because this, if it, were a, if it was a shortcut, was a really bad shortcut, especially during the wintertime. And, and it was at the bottom of this slope right here that you're looking at. And it's hard to see, and the road is in better condition than it was when I was growing up. But uh, at the bottom of that spot was what my brother and I always called the big mud puddle. That's because it was a big mud puddle. And so we had graphic and descriptive words to describe it. So it was a great big mud puddle. But it was a mud puddle that was so big that it would reach basically from one side of the lane to the other. It was huge. And when people would go through it a little bit too fast and so forth, it would knock the bottom out of that puddle even more. Sometimes it probably had a four to six inch drop in the middle of the puddle where people could go through and kind of hit bottom. In fact, that's what would happen. People who didn't know the road, or who weren't thinking, or who were in a hurry, 
or who were trying to get to another place faster and make a shortcut, or who were drunk in the middle of the night, as sometimes happened, would come down there, and I don't know what they were thinking. It was a country road. They'd already been down a whole bunch of potholed, rutted area. They had to slam their car to pieces on all the different parts of the road that they'd already experienced. They would come to this point, and there's this puddle that stretches from side to side of the road, and they would just gun their engine. They couldn't see what was really there in the road other than water. And they just gunned their engine. And it was more than once that my dad could hear people yelling and hollering and engines racing as people are literally stuck in the puddle. So people abandoned their cars there. People got out and shouted and yelled. Uh, we were concerned. My dad was concerned. It's like, what's going on out there? Because people would be drunk and losing their cars in the puddle. But one of the interesting things that takes place in life is that we have along our particular road sometimes things that we can't see. In fact, there's a lot of times things that we can't see, and, and it's really impossible to know. Now, there were ways through this mud puddle. We would drive this way to Gallardi Road and out Gallardi to eventually uh, Sierra Folsom Boulevard to church every Sunday in our little two-wheel drive cars. Yes, we would do it. Because if you knew where you were going, if you knew there was a high spot in the middle and a high spot on the far edge, you could put your wheel on that far edge and a wheel in the center high spot, and you could make it through without swamping the car or losing in the puddle. But, but people that didn't know would just sometimes gun their engines and go for it, an obstacle that really stopped many other people from getting down the road actually usually didn't even deter us. We would walk to school that way when I was a boy, because you could walk just along the edges, about a foot on either edge that was not water, and you could get to the school bus on the far edge at the junction of Logan Lane and Gallardi. And that really brings us to the story of Joseph, because by all rights, by the time we arrive at this point in the story of Joseph's journey, he should have been a wreck. He should have left his bumper like other people did in our mud puddle, in that part of his journey long before. He should have wiped out or at least stalled in the middle of the road. He should have been storming around angry and yelling. He should have been looking for someone to punish. He should have been looking for some way to bring a sense of personal closure to unjustifiable events in his life. After all, his troubles weren't like the troubles of people who drove down our lane in the middle of the night and not paying enough attention. His troubles were not the result of stupidity meeting an inanimate puddle at too high a speed on a dirt road in the middle of the night in the foothills. His troubles were people who had deeply hurt him, and they were the people who should have loved and protected him most. So what is the story behind this story for Joseph? How was it possible that he could actually forgive? Will probe that answer a little bit more after we pray. Father, we are a people who rub shoulders with people. And as we rub shoulders with people, often people who are closest to us, we find we have friction, we have offenses, we have needs, and we need to know how to forgive. Let me say that personally. Father, I need to know how to forgive. It would be pretty easy at this 
point in Joseph's life just to leave the forgiving to Joseph. Just to figure that he found a way through and that was good enough, but as for me, I'll hold on to my offenses, thank you, and wring a little justice from the injustice that's been spent on me. Would you help us this morning? Not to stop there, but to see the things that other people can't see. To see the way through what should otherwise make us angry, bitter, vitriolic people. Help us to see the way through. The way through to forgive, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, I want to remind you of where we've been in Genesis 45 to this point. Last week, we talked specifically about the fact that Joseph, in three different ways, tells us about something of the secret of his experience with his brothers when he comes to that point. He points out in Genesis 45.5, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. He says again in Genesis 45.7, And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. Again, he says in Genesis 45 and verse 8, in an amazing summary statement, So it was not you who sent me here, but God. God, Joseph could say, has a plan for good. And that's really, in one sense, the summary of how we came to the conclusion of our message last week. God has a plan for good. So Joseph, as he looked at the situation, as he looked at the difficulties of his life, as he looked at the things that had cost him so much pain, came to the very riveting and solid conclusion, this was all a part of God's plan and this plan of God was good. That statement alone is an impossibility for us to make unless we have actually seen God in the middle of our circumstances. We can't say that in the middle of sickness, in the middle of, as we'll see this morning, personal fences, things that have hurt us. We can't say that when all of life seems to be falling apart and nothing is going our way, unless unless we have this foundation under us, that we really know that God is the one who is in charge and that God, this God, who is in charge of everything, has brought me to this place. His plan is good. And I would remind you again, as we've said in the past, if God had a better place for you, if God had a better place for me, wouldn't he put us there? I mean, really, wouldn't he do that? He's the God Almighty, King of creation, Lord of the universe. He is in charge of everything. And he is determined to do good to you. So wouldn't he put you in the right place if there were a better place for his kingdom? Can we say it this way? He is more concerned about his kingdom than you or I are. We think, well, God, there's got to be a better way to build this kingdom of yours. And he says, I have you exactly where I want you. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand and think that this breeds passivity, that we should say, well, then I just kind of sit back, take my ease and say, God, you can move me if you want. That's not the point of God being in charge of everything that we experience. 
That's not the point. The point is that we can trust him and cooperate together with him. And you'll remember we made that a real focus last week, looking at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. We are his workmanship, Paul says, writing of, of God and of our relationship to him. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he has ordained beforehand that we should do them. So get the, do you feel the, the combination of the ideas there? So God has ordained these good works from forever. He is the God in charge. He has put us in the place that he wants us to be at the right moment, at the right time. But we get the chance, as his workmanship, to join him in his work. But his work is often hard and uncomfortable. It's not the kind of thing that we really wanted to do. I have certain kinds of work that I would like to do for God. Maybe you're the same way. It's like, well, yes, I would really like to do that. And usually the kinds of work I want to do for God are things that are in my line of strengths, or at least things I perceive to be strengths, or wish were strengths, or hope are strengths, or things that make me feel good about myself. But sometimes God asks us to do things that are not in line with our strengths, and are not going to make us feel good about ourselves. I've spent quite a bit of time in places like that. Have you? I can say in the past five years, I've spent a lot of time in places where it's like, God, there's got to be a better plan. But God says to me, as he says to you, I have a plan, my plan is for good. If I had a better plan, if there were any better thing for my kingdom, do you think that I would maybe do it? Because I am the God who is in charge. And I am doing what I do for good. So God sent Joseph, and he had a plan for good. I want you to understand as you look down through Genesis 45, and we really didn't go through the whole chapter last week, that there is something even more interesting about what is taking place here as Joseph announces the confidence that he has in God's sending of him to this place. And I want you to see it like this. God sent me to preserve life. So get it, God didn't just send Joseph. God sent Joseph to do a task. He sent him for the purpose of working together with God in specific ways. He sent me to preserve life. God sent me to preserve you. Now think, guys, stop for a moment and realize who Joseph is talking to. He is face-to-face, nose-to-nose with his brothers that have hated him and the reason, they are the immediate cause. They are the flesh and blood reason why Joseph has experienced the pain and anguish and distress of all the years that have preceded this point. And he stands there and tells them, God sent me to preserve you. Now, at that point, I think I would be, if I were in Joseph's shoes, saying, (laughs) okay, I mean, I sure at least wouldn't tell him that, even if I believed it were true. I'd want him to squirm a little more. I'd want to say, hey, guys, I want you to know I'm going to issue you some sort of, I'm going, to, I'm going to hold out the scepter, you will not die, but it's only by my great mercy and grace. He says, I've come for a purpose. God sent me here. He sent me to preserve life. He sent me specifically to preserve and care for you and your families. God sent me, Joseph says, 
So we find that Joseph is there not only because God has sent him, but to do the things that God has sent him to do. If you go on down to verse 14, we find one of the most touching portions of the entire chapter and probably of the entire book of Genesis. In verse 14 of chapter 45, we find Joseph, it says, then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. Just like the previous times, Joseph weeps. This time, too, Joseph weeps upon Benjamin's neck and Benjamin weeps upon his neck. And then get this in verse 15. And then he turns to his ten brothers. And he kisses all his brothers. And he weeps upon them. Up until this time, Joseph's entire, through Joseph's entire outpouring, which takes place from verse 4 through verse 15, so he's pouring out his soul to his brothers. I am Joseph. In this whole time, get this, the brothers never said one word. They were completely silent. We find that here in verse 15. It says, after that, after Joseph kissed his brothers and wept upon them, after that, his brothers talked with him. Till that point, they were absolutely silent. They were too stunned, too horrified, too overwhelmed to say anything. Joseph, whom they presumed dead, was actually alive. He was alive and he was the Lord of Egypt. He was alive and had heard their secret confessions when they thought that he couldn't understand them. He was alive and, and he wasn't angry. He was alive and he was speaking words of comfort and provision. He was alive and he was loving them from the very depths of his soul. The brothers didn't know the times that Joseph had previously wept. How he had wept over them before, wept over the agony, wept over the misunderstanding, over the hatred, over the exclusion, over the loss, until now, and now in the full wail of 22 years of pent-up, unspeakable grief, Joseph unleashes his soul, and they hear of the wailing outside. It's loud. They hear news of it all the way to Pharaoh's own house. If not the sound itself, the news certainly reached the king in a hurry. As we think about what's taking place in Joseph's life at this very emotional climax of this meeting with his brothers, I want you to make note of some very important things that are going to help us in understanding the process of forgiveness here. First of all, Joseph, this is a head shaker to me, Joseph says to them, I want to be close to you. He says it several times in several different ways. So here we find in verse 4, he says, come near to me, please. He says again, you shall be near me. If you look a little bit further down, do not be distressed, verse 5, or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land, verse 6, these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me, verse 7, before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. 
He has made me father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall, listen to what he says in verse 10, dwell in the land of Goshen. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me. You and your children, that's his ten brothers, and your children's children, and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. Verse 11, there I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell me, tell my father of all my honor in Egypt, and of all that you have seen, hurry and bring my father down to me. Joseph says, come near to me, please. You shall be near me. Again, he says, I will provide for you. And again, he comes so close as to kiss his brothers and weep upon them. But this closeness, this proximity of a man who genuinely loves people who have hurt him is not a Pollyanna kind of of oblivion, not just sort of a, an optimist view of the world. Joseph says to his brothers, you'll notice, he never says that they did not sin against him. In fact, look back at verse 5. And now do not be distressed or angry, he says to his brothers, comforting the ones who should have been comforting him. Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me. He says, you did do it. You were the cause of the pain. You were the ones who were the, the human instrumentation, but you were the human instrumentation of God, of God who had a bigger and a better plan. So think about it this way. The gospel, as it shows up in Joseph's brothers' lives, means that the darkness of sinful deeds, their sinful deeds, is resolved in the light not by adding more darkness to make offenses look less sinful. Sometimes I think we want to say that forgiveness means I simply kind of say it didn't matter that much. That's okay. It wasn't that big a deal. Oh, yes, it was. It was a really big deal, and it hurt deeply. Don't try to pretend that things didn't matter that actually did matter. That's not forgiveness. That's optimism. And optimism has an amazing way, like a house of cards, of crumbling in the first breath of wind. It just doesn't hold in the storm of life. Joseph does not build a house of cards. He says, we bring the offense to the light, and there in the light, I recognize that it was not really primarily your hand. It was the hand of God. He looked past the offense of his brothers to the very hand of God. He didn't try to lighten their darkness by pouring more darkness in. He brought it into the light. But the gospel also plays in Joseph's life in a very specific way regarding forgiveness. In his life, it's important to recognize that real love is the, not the fruit of ignorance, but the harvest of knowledge. The knowledge that sin is real and that pain really hurts, but that sin and pain are swallowed up in the love of God. That's what Joseph had to know. He had to bring his brothers. We've seen how he's been working together with God to bring his brothers the gospel to the point of recognizing their need for something that they did not have, for the importance of coming face-to-face -face with God and repenting. But for Joseph, he had to come also, likewise, to the place of recognizing 
that pain was real, but that the love of God was greater. That's kind of the foundation of forgiveness as we see it playing out in Joseph's life. Forgiveness never is a fake-it-until-you-make-it proposition. It looks the ugly reality of the offense right in the face, and it sees through it the unfathomable beauty of grace. Joseph is committed to working together with God, to playing his part in this story of redemption. And I want you to understand this is not just a remote sort of distant theory, something that Joseph traveled land giving seminars on. This was something that was personal to him. This was right at the ground level of his own difficult circumstances. You know, I've found in my personal experience that it's much easier to talk about loving than to actually love. I really love the idea of loving. But loving is harder than loving the idea of loving. Because really loving means real people. You with me? It means real people with irritating habits. <laughs> yeah. Yes, you can count mine. Ask my wife. No, don't ask her. But uh, with irritating habits, people with sinful tendencies, people that sin against you over and over in the same way, time after time after time after time, and come back and say, boy, I'm sorry, will you forgive me again? Those are the people. This is not just a remote sort of an idea, but a close-up personal thing for Joseph. I had the privilege of knowing a number of years ago, over 20 years ago, when I was working in Chicago at a Christian organization, a missionary by the name of Otto Koning. And Otto Koning worked, I think, somewhere in proximity to the Hivelis, and uh, he was a missionary in New Guinea. And he was famous for saying, I'd be a great missionary if it weren't for the people. <laughs> aren't we like that? That's, we, it's funny to us because that's exactly the way we are. I'd be a great husband if it weren't for my wife. I'd be a great wife if it weren't for my husband. I'd be a great friend if it weren't for this, this freak over here that won't work together with me and doesn't answer my texts. I, I mean, really? Doesn't it get down to those kinds of things? It's because real people have real interactions with real issues that bother you. Then we come to our enemies. Right now we're talking about our friends. Then we come to our enemies, the people who have hurt us, whose malicious words, whose acrimonious deeds have cut into our souls. People who have taken from us things that we will never be able to know or enjoy again. People whose sin against us has changed our lives forever. Remember the story of the church in South Carolina, Charleston. We played that little snippet a few sermons back. And after the shooter had come in and killed a number of people in that church, one of the survivors said these words, I forgive you. I will never be able to talk to her, I think her mother, again. I will never be able to hold her again. But I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. You remember hearing the anguish and the pain with which she said those words? It was real, right? And there were real people involved. And the real people resulted in real trauma that would never be undone. But she could look past to the beauty of grace. 
So just very quickly, I want to show you the four major players in this drama that we're watching. It's the offense. The offense is seen from Joseph's life. He was hated. He was ignored. He was sold. And he was lied about. Maybe you've had some of those things done to you. Those are the kinds of things that are done to enemies. But it was enemies who were his brothers. The offenders themselves, he was considered dead as well. The offenders themselves... <laughs> they, they were immoral, Reuben, incest, Judah, adultery. They were bloodthirsty. You remember Simeon and Levi massacring all the people of Shechem. They were lying. In the 22 years of Joseph's time in Egypt, as far as we know, they never told the truth about what happened to, them, to him, to their father. And they were guilty. They were guilty, and for the most part, until we actually meet them again in this interaction in Genesis later on, as we see them, they never even indicated that they cared. So it's something to forgive people who are genuinely sorry, right? It's like, I hurt you, I understand that, I'm really sorry that I did it. And we might be able to squeak out, I forgive you. Because they really wrung a few tears and offered genuine sorrow. But these guys, <laughs> until this point, as far as we know, didn't even care. The offended, interestingly enough, for someone who should have been angry and bitter, Joseph was hurting, but he was whole. He was determined to help his brothers in every way he could. He was actually drawing close to them and wanting to be close to them. And then there's God. God who is the main player of the story, God, who is determined to accomplish his purposes in his ways for ends that are good for each person involved. And it's really with God that we come to the center point of how we can forgive. It's in, Gen in, in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32 that we understand some of the concrete ways that the character of God actually impacts us. So we say we've got to be able to see God in this situation. If we can see God in this situation, perhaps then we have the power to go through. But I want you to understand that it's not just seeing some kind of an idea about God, some sort of an aura in the sky, some sort of an imaginary being sitting upon a throne. This is a God who operates in concrete ways. And this is what Ephesians 4.32 says about him. It says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, like God does. Oh, so this is the character and nature of God himself. God is kind. He is tender-hearted. He is forgiving. It, says, it goes on, as God in Christ forgave you. So if we step back for a moment to Ephesians chapter 2, we realize that we were the enemy. We were the enemy who was... Uh, really the object of God's wrath. We were the ones who were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, verse 4 of chapter 2, was rich in mercy simply because of the great love with which he loved us. He made us alive in verse 5 of that same chapter of Ephesians 2. He went on to show us the riches of his grace forever in chapter 2, verse 7. So really God, God was merciful for the purpose of showing more mercy forever. We who were his enemies. Really kind of a Joseph-type situation, only ten times worse. A hundred times worse. For we were those who, in his moment of greatest 
need. Drove the nails that were used to crucify the Lord Jesus. And this God, this God is the one who forgives, who forgives for Jesus' sake. So let's just say it this way. God forgives on the basis of what Jesus has done, not, get this, not on the basis of what we have done. That's really important, but he doesn't just do that. He forgives on the basis of his character, not on the basis of our nature. So God forgives because of who he is. And now he tells us to forgive the same way. So who are you? God says, I forgive you not on the basis of who you are. That is who the offender is. So I'm the offender. And I come to God, and it's not because I'm so, so sorry that God can forgive me. He forgives me because of what his work is through Jesus and who he is as God. So now he says, go and do the same thing. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 1, it'd be fun to trace this all the way through in a little more detail. He actually goes on to say, so be imitators of God. How do we imitate God? Well, that's a great idea. I want to be an imitator of God. I want to be godly. I want to be just like God. Hold on. Wait a minute. The verse before, so forgive. That's the context. The context is if you want to be just like God, if you want to imitate God, if you want to actually demonstrate to the world the character and nature of God, oh, so forgive and walk in love as children of your Father who forgives you. So when we're talking about seeing God in Joseph's life and Joseph looking past his offenders to God, we're talking about getting it very practical. We forgive on the basis of what Jesus has done, not on the basis of the merit of our offender, not because of our personal magnanimity. I'm so good that I can forgive you. We forgive because we have a merciful, forgiving, redeeming God who lives in us and he lives his life out through us, even among people who hurt us, people who despise us, people who don't even care. So we copy our Father. We're imitators of God, walking in love just like he does. I think one of the questions that comes up as we think about forgiveness, as we consider it in the life of Joseph and the context of Genesis chapter 45 is, is it really essential that we forgive? Especially when it comes to enemies. Is it really essential to forgive enemies? And I would propose to you three, three ideas, three baselines for why we must forgive our enemies. And, and the first is this. It's the essence of the character of God to love his enemies. That's what it says in Luke chapter 6, verses 35 through 36. Love your enemies, do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. You hear the resonance with Ephesians chapter 5 there. We're sons of God, sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Yeah, that's what he does. That's the nature of God. He God is by nature kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Therefore, Jesus goes on to say, be merciful as your Father is merciful. To say it another way, imitate God, copy him by loving those who hurt you and don't even care. We need to forgive. We've got to forgive. Another obstacle we might 
put in the way or another objection we might raise. Well, I don't know if this person that is uh, currently my enemy is a brother or sister in Jesus, so maybe I don't have to forgive him. You know, God doesn't give us that knowledge about everyone that we meet. Instead, he says, just love them the way I love you. One more obstacle that I think sometimes we raise is I can, I can handle this on my own. I can deal with it. And so I don't really have to forgive because I'm big enough and strong enough to bear the weight. And I just tell you, we don't have the ability to bear the weight of unforgiveness. It will, hear me, it will turn to bitterness. You see, I, I don't have to forgive. I'm going to wait until they're really repentant. Isn't that the way the argument goes? When they really repent, then I'll forgive. Can I just tell you, you don't have the capacity for that, and neither do I. If we try to do that, we will become bitter people. It's just the way that it works. We don't have the ability to hold on to it. Joseph's Example reminds us of that, and Jesus testifies to that as well in Luke chapter 23. In his own experience, they came, it says, to the place that's called the skull, to Golgotha, and there they crucified him. And Jesus said, Father, from the cross, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Joseph said essentially to his brothers, you didn't know what you were doing. You didn't really understand the whole story. But God did, and he sent me here. So I look to God, and I'm holding on to him and his purpose for me. We find the same thing in the life of of Stephen. In Stephen's life, as we heard read earlier, beautifully read, thank you for that. The Pharisees, it says, ground their teeth in rage. Stephen gazed into heaven, and what he saw was this the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So Jesus is in his center view. And because of that, as the rocks are flying, as his body is bleeding, as his bones are being crushed by the stones that are flying at him, he says to Jesus, receive my spirit, and then says to God, do not hold this sin against them. Notice Stephen did not say, This isn't really that bad a sin. He didn't say, I'm not sure if they're repentant or not. He did not say, I'm not certain if these people will ever come to Christ, so I don't know if I really need to forgive them. He said, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. That's another way to say, forgive them. In the little rubs of life, it's hard to hold on to the reality of what that actually looks like. And when it comes to big things, to issues that we have with enemies, it's even bigger. Some of you probably know the name Corey Tenboom. She survived the horrors of the camp, concentration camp in World War II, Ravensbrück, notorious for its horrors. And after World War II, she survived that concentration camp and she went on to give a message of forgiveness all around the world. And one night in 1947, she was speaking to a group in Munich. And she assured them in these words, these are her words, when we confess our sins, God cast them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The people that night hardly dared to believe that it was true. 
And so they literally left the meeting in silence, except for one man. And when Corey saw him, she knew who he was, because he had been an SS guard at that camp. To Corey's chagrin, he didn't leave. Instead, he walked up to her and stuck out his hand. And he said this, how good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. Corey has in her mind the uniform, the cap, skull and crossbones, the leather crop at his belt, the line of naked women shamed to walk past this same unfeeling brute. She has in her mind her sister who died there. Her blood seemed to freeze. She actually fumbled in her purse instead of taking the man's hand. She who had just preached forgiveness to this crowd. He went on to say, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me the cruel things that I did there. But I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fraulein. Will you forgive me? Corey thought, could this man erase Betsy, her sister's slow, terrible death, simply for the asking? And she was faced at that moment with that question that we have been wrestling with here this morning. Isn't it maybe better for me to hold on to this pain? Isn't it maybe better for me to, to keep my hands on this trial, this, this circumstance where someone has hurt me? She looked to God. She saw her sins, so many, forgiven through Jesus, and this is what she said. Help. <laughs> she prayed, help. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. To God, she said, you, you supply the feeling. And so, these are her words, she said, so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you. brother, I cried with all my heart. She says, for a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. And she gives us one of the reasons why we must forgive. She says this, I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. We want to be recipients of God's love. We want to think that somehow uh, we really understand what it means to be forgiven by him. Can I tell you that we won't experience it? Can I tell me that I won't experience it until I take the first step to say, I 
forgive. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Along your road in life, you're going to encounter people who hurt you. You might have somebody in your mind right now. Sometimes they'll tell you that they hurt you and didn't want to cause you pain, but they somehow did. They're just reflecting the pain inside because they're subjects of the, they were subjects of the prince of hate, but sometimes they'll never even tell you, and you have a choice to make. Sometimes they won't ever repent. Sometimes they will never let you know that they're sorry. And sometimes, can I just be honest, sometimes they never will be. Joseph forgave his brothers not because of his brother's repentance. He forgave his brothers because he saw God. God, who was big enough to forgive him. And so he imitated God. A few very practical things I want to leave you with this morning that we're just skipping past other things. I'm sorry for the skipping but I want to give you these four things that are really practical as we leave here this morning. How can we forgive? What are some practical ways that we can see God right through painful offenses? Here's one. Ask this question. In what way have I done this very same thing to God? In what way have I done this very same thing to God? It was Oswald Chambers who said, watch the kind of people God brings around you and you will be humiliated to find that this is his way of revealing the kind of person that you, that I, have been to him. So you say, boy, this really bugs me about this person or this really hurts me when they do this. Maybe we need to take a look at how we treat God because it's very likely that he's brought that person into our lives for the purpose of showing something of the nature of our relationship to him. And then consider, whoops, I've got to go forward, not back. Uh, we're going backwards still. Hang on. Here we go. The trouble with PowerPoints is that they lock you into a set of notes. And um, as I said, I depart from notes sometimes. So here we go. Consider, how does God forgive me? How does God forgive me? Be kind to one another. We're told in Ephesians 4.32, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So how does God forgive you? Ask, in what way do I do this very same thing to God? And consider, how does God forgive me? And then verbalize. You'll notice that that's a big part of what's taking place in Joseph's experience in Genesis chapter 45. Verbalize, I forgive you. I do not hold you hostage any longer in my mind. God has a purpose. My eyes are on him and his purpose is Good, and then, and this is one of the most stunning parts of the entire chapter to me, act, embrace the person who offended you, draw near, reach out. It's not always possible, it's not always wise. I'm not proposing that this is a one-stop summary statement for all the things that have to do with forgiveness, but I would say that as we look at forgiveness from Joseph's perspective, this is a very important part, and I also would say we see that from Corey's life. And I also would say that in my own personal experience, in the small offenses that have occurred in my life with people close to me, this is the one where I tend to fail right up front. Oh, I can say, through my clenched teeth, I forgive you. Because it's an act of the will to simply say, I forgive you. But it's something else to reach out your hand or to embrace.
How is God asking you to forgive the people in your life who have hurt you? There are so many more things that we could have said even about Genesis chapter 45 today, and we've spent two Sundays on it already. But I wonder if we couldn't just conclude with that simple question. I'm guessing that there are some of us right now here who have some person's face in your mind. Yeah, that's the person. This is a chance to forgive that person. And how are we going to do it? Just the same way that Joseph did. We're going to look past the person to the purpose and plan of God and recognize that God, who could have orchestrated anything in your life that he desired, yes, did bring this person to fulfill a specific purpose in your life, as painful as it is. Now you get the chance to join him in his work, a really specific kind of work, a work by which you join him in forgiving those who have offended you. Let's pray. It's a pretty personal message, Father. We can feel the weight of it. We can feel the impossibility of it on our own. We can't forgive on our own. Jesus, forgiving sins was... The question was raised, who is this who forgives sins? Because really only God forgives sins in the greatest and biggest sense. But we get the chance to join you by demonstrating that forgiveness to people who have hurt us. Those faces that are in our minds right now. Would you help us to take the steps that are necessary, as Joseph did, not to candy coat the sin, not to say it didn't matter, not to say it really doesn't hurt. That's all just a fallacy. And it doesn't bring the gospel light to the people who have hurt us or to our own lives either. In this place, would you help us to see you? and to copy, to imitate our Father, whose very nature is to forgive. We've got a journey ahead of us, Father, a journey that's going to involve probably more of these mud holes. There are people that haven't yet offended us that are going to offend us yet. It could happen yet today. It might be in small things. It might be in great things. There are people who have offended us. Would you help us to look to the invisible God, and by that power of his nature and character to forgive for Jesus' sake.